You know, we've been, this series practice, we've been teaching this approach to what many would call spiritual formation in our church for many, many years. This is the first time I've taught it in reverse. We, we've taught it, we've taught it back. If you've been around our church for any amount of time, you know we've, we've done this in, in backwards. And, and, and I thought, you know, we're going to, in this series, this time for the first time, we're going to talk about the why before we talk about the how. So we started this series about why does this matter, and then each week as we've been working back through this statement that I'm going to introduce you to for the first time, usually we've taught it in the past, we teach this statement in the beginning, and then we work through it. But, but we wanted to capture your heart with the why before we talked about the how. And our why really comes from this verse in Matthew 16. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man, here it comes, will come with his angels in the glory of the Father and will judge all people. That includes us according to their deeds. In the Greek, that word is praxis, which means to me good deeds that come from godly people. Or maybe we could say godly deeds that come from godly people. It's, it's not enough to just do good things. It's that we're supposed to do good things because of the goodness of who Christ is inside of us. That, that's our why. We're going to all stand before him one day, even though heaven is promised to us by grace. Jesus says, hey, you're, you're going to have to give an account for the life that you have lived. And so we've been working through these words. We started with, in this series, this idea of godly deeds. What are they? Why they're important? What that conversation with Jesus is going to be about? And then if there is an expectation that godly deeds are supposed to flow from our lives, we ask the question, well, how is that going to happen? And we said, well, it's only going to happen if we become virtuous people. If, if we are a virtuous person, then the natural outflow of virtue is good and godly deeds. And we taught on the 12 virtues that the Bible gives to us that represents the character of Christ. So then we ask, right, the next question, if I'm supposed to be a virtuous person, how can I become more virtuous than I am today? And we said, well, you got to do some gardening in your heart. And the way that we do gardening in our heart so virtues can grow is through pathways or what many people call spiritual disciplines. They are spiritual disciplines, but we like to call them pathways because they take you somewhere. And where they take you is into a life of virtue so that good and godly deeds can flow from your life. Well, and the reason why pathways, which we got to last week, are the things that we're supposed to do, the 12, is because each of those 12 in their own right and their own way fulfill one of the six commands of Jesus. Follow me, he says. Love God, love people, be perfect, go everywhere, and receive power. You, you can restate them like this. Devotion to Jesus, intimacy with God, care for others, courage to change, diligence and mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit. These are the fundamentals of Christianity, the life that Jesus calls us to. And the way that I walk in those fundamentals is through those 12 pathways. And then those 12 pathways produce in me virtue, 
And then as virtue grows in me, good and godly deeds will flow from my life. That's the essence of the Christian experience right there. So let's bring it all the way back to the beginning, to this one simple verse in 1 Corinthians 11.1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is this not the shortest verse in the Bible that sums up the commitment that we're supposed to make as devoted followers of Christ? When I am born into the family of God through a vow of devotion to Christ, Jesus stands in front of me and he says, now are you prepared to do the work of becoming like me? Heaven is promised to me by grace. Heaven is promised to me because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. But then he looks at me and he says, now let's get to work. Works don't get me into heaven, but because I'm headed there, come on, I should be busy. I should be busy. And I should be busy, as we're going to get to at the very end, reaching for the divine nature of Christ. There, there should be people in my life that I am following after that are a little bit farther along than me. Paul's. I have people in my life that I consider Paul's. I'm following them as they follow Christ. right? And then there should be some people that I'm, I'm just a little bit farther along than they are. And then I can say to them, follow me as I follow Christ because I'm following them as they follow Christ. That's the beauty of community together. None of us are going to reach fully the character of Christ that is attainable without community. There's got to be people that are inspiring me and challenging me, maybe pushing and prodding when I need pushing and prodding, and then I give that same gift to other people. Are there people that you're chasing after as they chase after Christ, and are there people who are chasing after you? All of that gives us this phrase, which is historically where we start. Now you're getting it at the end. If I accept the one, right, this is this one invitation into discipleship, to follow others as they follow Christ. If I accept the one, then I must obey the six. To obey the six, I must walk in the 12. And when I walk in the 12, I become the 24. And then godly deeds will flow from my life. This is the doing part of Christianity. We don't want to be a church that just talks to you about the believing part. We want to talk to you about the doing part. Jesus had just as much to say in his life and ministry about the doing of life in devotion to him just as much as he did in the believing. You and I are going to have a conversation with him in the end. And he's going to talk to us about this. Now, we, he's not going to have this chart necessarily that's going to pop up on the screen. We don't even know if he's going to use these words. But these are the words that we feel like God has given to us to help us to understand, to help us to focus on what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ. That there is an invitation that we have been given to obey to, into discipleship, which means that we've got to be obedient to the six fundamental commands of Christ. That I live out through 12 pathways that produce in me 24 virtues, the character of Christ. And then the fruit of that, as John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This is part of what he was talking about. That there should be some outcome because of who Christ is in me. We are a discipleship community here at City Life Church. We, we want to be a church that challenges and presses one another to become more like him. Not just saved by him, but to devote our lives to him and the work of becoming like him. 
Let, let, me, let me read you this verse, this, this list of cities. If you're one of my Bible nerds in here tonight, like I am, proudly, you might recognize these. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Where, where do you find these cities listed together? Anybody? Yes, come on. There's all kinds of Bible nerds in the house tonight. Come on. That's good. Yes, Revelation. These are the, the, the seven churches that, that John prophetically speaks to. Now, now it's not a coincidence. He, he's, the Holy Spirit isn't asking him to just pick seven random churches. If, if, if we were to have a map onto the screen, what we would find is these ancient cities are all along the border of modern-day Turkey. And right across the border, there's this little tiny island called the island of Patmos, which is where John was imprisoned. And just across that strait of water that separates them are those seven churches. And those seven churches were important to John because John was a bishop over those seven churches. Now, why does that matter? It's because John's not speaking to strangers. He has a relational connection to them. In fact, I would argue that what John has been saying to them his whole life in his leadership is, follow me as I follow Christ. And here is John knowing that he's coming to the end of his life, and the Holy Spirit inspires him to challenge them to press on in their journey. And in that challenge, he points out some things that they're not doing well. Can we just agree we do not like that when people do that for us? But we need it. We need Johns in our lives who, who are willing to look at us and say, hey, you can do better than that. We need people in our lives who love us enough to maybe say things to us that we don't want to hear. We all love encouragement. Come on. We, but sometimes we need correction. May it be that we would, through a community, a church family that we could all find to call home, whether it's here or somewhere else, is not important to us where we build bonds of relationship with people that are close enough to where we trust them to say hard things to us. And that when they say those hard things to us, it doesn't result in the fracturing of relationship. It, in, it results in the deepening of relationship. May it be for all of us. And each one of those statements that John gives to the churches, every one of them includes this one. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Every one of them. He comes back to that phrase, to that statement. I think the Holy Spirit has something to say to the church of America today. And this is what I believe it is. Be careful to not lose sight of the importance of becoming like Jesus on your way to heaven. I think that the church in America has lost a little bit of that. I think there's been such an emphasis on what to believe. I think there's been such an emphasis on being right. I think there's been such an emphasis on right believing that we've lost sight of the good doing. See, if, if I have all the right beliefs, but those beliefs don't form in me the character of Christ, then I would say that those beliefs have not become effectual not in the way that God intended. Believing the right things should produce something in me. And what it should produce in me is the character of Christ. And the outflow of that should be godly deeds that points the world, not to me, but to him. 
See, that's one of the big differences between a good deed and a godly deed. Sometimes we do good deeds because we want people to see us. But when we give ourselves to godly deeds, it's not about people seeing me. It's about people seeing the God that I serve and the Jesus who saves me. In our lives, may it be that City Life Church, at the center of who we are, would always be a message of, yes, believe the right things, but that those beliefs would produce in me the character of Christ that we would share with him in his divine nature. So we had parents' night at RC this week. There you go. RC represent. RC is our student ministries here. And every year at parents' night, we start with worship together, then we play a game, and then Vanessa and I come in here with the parents that have, have uh, uh, students that are rising sixth graders, right, rising middle schoolers. They're, they're, they're venturing into the world of being a teenager, right? And so, so we come in and we talk about what, what you can expect of us, and then we talk to them about what we, we expect of you, right? Because when your child becomes a teenager, it's not supposed to be, thank the Lord I can finally drop them off at church and somebody else can take over, Right? We're here to inspire them, but also empower parents, right, to lead their children. And so we also always play a game, and then parents usually come. The purpose of the game is to make fun of the parents. We understand that, and we willingly participate. So this was the first year that I was a participant in the game. There were four of us up there, and there were words that were shared that it's part of the youth language, Right, the, the lingo of, of, of the youth culture. And then we were given the word, and then we had to say what we thought it meant. Let's see how you do. Simp. I wrote down, this is, I wrote it, no, you cannot have a simp of my sweet tea. That's got to be what it is, right? Well, apparently it's not that. Just in case you were, you were wondering, simp means, see, I can't even remember what they were. It was just on Wednesday. A person doing way too much for a person that they like, right? A person just going, do, doing too much to demonstrate their affection. So if you hear this word right now, now you're going to know what it is. The next one was this bussing. I said bussing is when you don't stop for the school bus at a school stop when the stop sign swings out and you run it and you get a ticket for bussing, right? But that's not it. That's not it. That's not what bussing means. Some of you, any, anybody recognizing these words? Some, some of the parents was like doing really good. Where's Christina Montgomery? She was awesome. Is she here tonight? Is Christina? Oh, she's in the back with the kids. I mean, we don't condone cheating, but I was like looking at Christina's. I wonder what Christina's writing over there. Bussing is when something is really good. Like you're going to go home and say, that sermon tonight was bussing. Bussing. Yes. Next one was no cap. No cap. I know. It doesn't mean that you don't have a hat on. That's not what it means. No caps allowed. It means that you're not lying. Like you would say, I was at that concert. No cap. Right? You're saying, I, I'm not, I, I'm telling you the truth. I was there when Taylor Swift was in town. No cap. I was there. The last one was this out of pocket. Now, this has been a saying from our generation for years. Right? If you're not available, you're out of pocket. Right? It's, but that's not what it means. That's not what it means. 
Derek told a hilarious story about his first job out of, out of college. His boss, they were in a meeting, and his boss said to them, hey, I'm going to be out of pocket for the rest of the day. And all of them looked at each other and was like, okay, that's really weird. And it's really weird that you're saying that to us right now. Because out of pocket means that you're taking things way too far, saying things that don't make sense, and you're just outright silly. Right? So you can imagine being in a meeting with your boss. Somebody needed to help that, right? You, you gotta, is the, if this phrase that I'm using, does it mean the same thing to my generation that it does to them? So I'm, I'm going to stop using out of pocket. So now I understand why sometimes people look confused when I say that I'm going to be out of pocket for the rest of the day. If you're going to connect with the next generation, sometimes you need to understand the next generation. Right? Language shapes culture. You with me? You cannot have a culture of discipleship if you don't have a language for discipleship. You're not going to have a culture of discipleship unless you have a language for discipleship. And so we spend a lot of time here at our church talking about the language of our discipleship because we want you to speak that language. We want you to understand that language. When I, when I talk to you about pathways, we want you to know what that means. And we want you to understand how it connects to virtue and how it's the fulfillment of commands because I'm walking in an invitation so that the outflow of my life will be good and godly deeds. And that one day, Jesus is going to want to have a conversation with me about language shapes culture. You will not, as a church, have a culture of discipleship without a language for discipleship. So I want to spend the rest of our time together tonight talking about what I call virtue blockers. Even if you give yourself to this journey, even if you wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, I, I, this is the only message that I've heard. I'm going to go back and listen to all the other ones. And as you do, you're going to go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to start with this red, yellow, green. That's part of the language of discipleship here, of measuring the presence of the pathways in my life. And, and I'm going to start moving them into me, my life instead of drifting away from them. Even if you do all of those things, there are, there are things in this world and in this life that will inhibit the growth of virtue in us, and I want to talk about those tonight. The first one is this. I call it being fallowed. Fallowed. Listen to Hosea 10.12. It says, I said, plant the good seeds of righteousness, and you will have a harvest, a crop of love. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts. It's good, isn't it? For now is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. Fallow, this is important that you understand. Because you might have somebody that you know that really gets serious about this journey of discipleship. And, and as they begin to do the work of these pathways, it seems as though they make a lot more progress that's faster than you. And then you get discouraged to give up. Well, it might be that your heart was just a little bit more fallow than theirs. Meaning that for them, it might be something that they're returning to. It used to be a part of their life, but it's not now. So maybe they stepped back into this journey, and the soil of their heart was a little bit more stirred up. Does that make sense? But if you're coming into this brand new, and it's completely foreign to you, and that you've never done any work to break up that soil of your heart, then your heart is fallowed. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just means that it might take a little bit longer. You can think of it this way. If you were to buy a farm and the farmer that was there before you 
devoted his life or her life to caring for that soil, and it was prepped and ready for the seed to go in, that journey's going to be really different if you buy, buy a plot of land in the middle of nowhere that's never been farmed, and, and you've got to get it ready. It's going to take years before it will produce a crop. You, you've got to recognize who you are and the journey that you've been on and the life that you've been living. And if your heart is fallowed, it doesn't mean that this approach to the formation of the character of Christ in, in, in you is broken. It just means that your heart needs a little bit more preparation. Fallowed. The next one is this, unlearned. 2 Timothy 2.15 reads this way, work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Unlearned. This is similar to fallowed in the sense that it might be that all of these concepts are brand new for you. The terms seem strange. It might be that you've never even read the Bible before, and you get in there and you're like, I'm not even sure what the book of Leviticus has to do with Christianity. And we would say, well, that's why you should not start there, right? You should start somewhere else. That's advanced. That's right. That's advanced. It's in the beginning of the book, but it's for advanced. We would say, start in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four stories that tell the story of the life of Jesus. And, and then you can jump into the book of Acts, which is the called Acts because it's the Acts of the Apostles, the early church. It's the birth of the church. Right? When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Acts, you're, it's, familiar, it's a familiar style of writing because it's biographical, it's historical. Right? And so you're, you're going to begin to find a sense of comfort level with some of the teachings of Christ. They're, they're going to become familiar to you as you begin to break out into the rest of Scripture. We would say, then read through the rest of the New Testament and then stop before you get to Revelation because then that's just going to be scary for you, right? And then back up and do Genesis and work through the rest of the Old Testament and then read how the story ends. The Bible is, as Randy Frazee says, it's one big mural that's working together, but they are, in the end, practically speaking, many books. And even though they are put in a certain order, it's not intended for us to read them in that order, unlearned. So it might take some time for you to become familiar. I tell, this, I tell people this. If, if, you are compl- if, if everything about the Bible is brand new for you, then start in a, a super modern translation like the Message Bible. When, when, when I made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990, even though I had grown up in the church, I had never read the Bible for myself and I picked up something called the book, which is a, a super loose translation, meaning that it's not really intended that you would draw from that. You wouldn't do study in it. It's not going to give you the basis of doctrine, but it familiarizes you with what we would call the meta narratives of Scripture, the main themes of the Bible, front to back. And then it also familiarizes you with the people of the Bible. So we say if you're starting out, find something like that that's easier to understand. It's a great way to begin. Fallowed. Unlearn. The next one is this personality. I I made that word up. Personality. You might say, that's not a word. It is not. Now you might say, well, why is there a person's name up there, Hippocrates, and not a Bible verse? And this, this, this this is important to understand. 
We can learn about things in our relationship with God that might even come from the world. There, there is a difference. I was reading an article today. It was so good. There is a difference between unbiblical and abiblical. Unbiblical means that it goes against the Bible. Abiblical means that the Bible just doesn't speak to it, but it doesn't mean that it's not an important part of this life experience that we understand. How many people here have teenagers that are about ready to drive? Anybody? Come on, Jennifer, we feel you. Yes. We should just stay up for a moment and pray for all those people, right? Yeah, that's so good. There is nothing in the Bible about how to teach your child to drive. Now, you can't use that as an excuse to now say to your child, you're not going to ever learn to drive because God doesn't talk about it. We, we understand that there are things in this life that, that are important for us to understand. My mother has passed down to me and has passed down to her for many generations that we will pass on to our children a recipe for sweet tea that there was nothing like it. Yes, thank you, Dom. There's nothing in the Bible about sweet tea, although it is heavenly. You understand there's a biblical, which means that the Bible doesn't speak to it, but it doesn't mean that it's not an important part of this life. And it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't affect my life as a devoted follower of Christ. Our personalities. Now, the Bible talks about temperament and teaches us about temperament, not through a list of what those temperaments are, but through observation of the different characters of the Bible God reveals. This is part of what we would call, I'm going to throw out a, a, a big academic word, it's part of called what we would call part of having a, a Pentecostal hermeneutic, Me meaning that the hermeneutic is the study of the Bible, and a Pentecostal hermeneutic means that we believe that you can learn things about Christian life through the narrative portions of Scripture, through the historical portion of Scripture, not just the overtly instruction portions of Scripture. Right? So we learn about temperament through the people of the Bible. Hipp Hippocrates was, right, we understand the Hippocratic Oath, doctor, early B.C.s, for like 400 to 300 something B.C., it's believed that he was the first person to observe and record various personality types, and he started with four. I think they're melancholy, phlegmatic, choleric, and sanguine. Thank you. Yes. The, the first person in history that's recorded who said, you know, people are different, and I'm using different as a euphemism. You with me? And, and so he, he began to categorize them and, and began to write them down. Now, we know that through study of personality, that has advanced through time, and there's all kinds of personality tests that you can take. And, and, right, and, and some of them are more effective than others, but all of them are insightful. Well, why am I talking about this? If you are not careful, you will let your personality inhibit you and give you permission to not do certain things that Christ expects of you. Yeah. Personality. I'm a naturally introverted person. Right? This, this, this part of my personality. But that doesn't mean that I have permission to then withdraw from relationships because I'm more comfortable being by myself than I am with other people. You with me? And we, every personality trait has its strengths and has its weaknesses. Every personality trait, even our strengths, if they're unchecked, can become a weakness. If my personality is such, to fill in the blank, and that makes certain parts, maybe even some of the pathways, we talked about this a little bit when we taught on the 12 pathways, is that my personality should not cause me to approach the 12 pathways like a buffet. I'll take a little bit of this, but I don't want any of that. 
personality. The next one is this, self-directed. Somebody say self-directed. Ooh, we don't like this one. Galatians 5.17 says, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants, and the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. All of us, there's something inside of us that says, I, I want to do it my own way. You, you've, we've told this story many times. When Claire was little, where's Claire? Is Claire over there? There she is. Yeah. Sweetest little girl you've ever met would point her finger at you, and she would close one eye just a little bit, and she would say, you know, say no to me. Yeah. She was this stinking tall. Right up to me. Her mom, she was like that to me. She was like this. You know, say no to me. There's something. We're born with it. There's something inside of me that says, ah, just, I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. If we're not careful as we go through this life and this journey of devotion to Christ, we will find ourselves, we might not be that direct with God. We, we might not be that overtly rebellious, right? Because we, we, we learn to be a little bit more subtle with our rebellion, but there is resistance inside of all of us that is our human nature that says to us, I want to do things the way that I want to do things. Even if I know that I shouldn't. Self-directed. Three more. Wounded. Philippians 3.13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. Talking about the perfection of the character of Christ, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. What's Paul talking about there? He's talking about a lot of things. But the principle he's laying down here is that there are things in our past that can become encumbrances for us in our today. And one of them are the wounds of our pasts. If, if you've lived a little bit longer like I have, and you look back over your own story, you, you have hurts. You, you have wounds. People who betrayed you, people who disappointed you, people who said things to you that hurt your feelings. And then those moments are amplified. They're amplified based on the relationship you have with that person. Meaning that the deeper the trust that you have, the more vulnerable you made yourself to that person, then those wounds go all the more deep. Right? A stranger on the street who says something to me might hurt me a little bit when my father says something to me that he's not. You tracking with me? The wound goes deeper. All of us have a collection, a story of wounds and hurts. If those wounds and hurts go unresolved over time, we suppress them, we, 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 we push them down, and we don't deal with them, those wounds will bleed out into our present moments. You, you can push it way down, but it still reveals itself. And one of the primary ways that unresolved wounds demonstrate themselves is when you experience emotion in a moment of frustration that is far beyond what the situation requires. Your child is filling up their cup with ice at the refrigerator and they're not paying attention and then it overflows and three ice cubes fall on the ground and then your reaction 
is as if they took a sledgehammer to your car. You, you tracking with me? The emotion that you bring to that moment is, is far beyond what it should be. If, if you are a person that has frequent experiences like that, then what I would say to you is you have wounds in your past that you've not dealt with. And that emotion is just down there, and, it, and it's going to find its way out one way or the other. Wounds. Scripted. This is similar than wounds, but, but yet it's a little bit different in the sense that it's not related to hurts. This is Romans 12, too. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Or some translations render that, I call it the gap will, the good and acceptable and pleasing will of God. There, there, there are patterns that we pick up. It doesn't mean that someone's hurt us. They're just patterns. When we do premarital counsel, we talk to them about scripts. We talk to them about patterns. When, when you come into marriage, you bring a script with you of what marriage is supposed to be based on the family that you grew up in. You bring a script. You bring a script for parenting. You bring a script for marriage. You bring a script for conflict resolution. You bring a script for how money should be managed or spent or not spent or not managed. And then to people, they come into marriage and they've got different scripts. Guess what that's called? It's called conflict. And it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's right and someone's wrong. It just means you're not aligned. Right? So there's scripts that we have in this life. And then if we're not open to the possibility that maybe the script that I have isn't the best script, and then I'm always trying to put my script on other people, then I'm going to live in a place of constant conflict with other people. And guess what? That becomes a barrier for virtue to grow. Scripted. And the last one is this. It's called oppressed. Oppressed. This is in 1 John 4, 1. It says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. What's, what's John saying here? John is saying, hey, we live in a temporal, natu natural, tangible world. But all around that is, an, is a spiritual realm that is unseen. That is very real. And, and that spiritual realm impacts and affects this world that we live in here. God's presence isn't the only presence that's in the world. There is also evil in the world. We believe the devil is a real person, a fallen angel. We don't believe it's fanciful or mythical. We believe it's historical. And the Bible talks about the devil being cast down and all the angels that fell with him, that there are ungodly influences that are in this world that the Bible says is the enemy, they are the enemies of our soul. Even if you are a devoted follower of Christ, you can be frustrated by ungodly influences. So what we say as a Christian is be wise. Be wise of the influences that you allow into your home. Be, be wise of the influences that you allow into your life. Be discerning. And as you grow in your relationship with Christ and your relationship with the Holy Spirit begins to mature, then, then he's going to begin to prompt you, hey, maybe this isn't something that you want to read or something that you need to watch. Maybe this isn't a relationship that you need to pursue because it could be a gateway into your life of ungodly influence. 
We want to be a church that helps you understand that and learn about it. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about it. Oppressed. You and I must, the de- must decide. This is where we started in this series. What we believe is waiting for us after we die. Right? Because what we believe about that day should ultimately determine how we live out our lives between now and then. And I believe, and I hope that you're convinced too after the series, that even though I am saved by grace, when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to have a conversation with me about the life that I lived. What did I do with the salvation that he paid such a great price for me to have? And I want, and I know that that I'm going to have just as many regrets as you in that moment. But can we just say, I want to have a little bit less than maybe what I should if I give myself to this journey. Is it possible for me to make that list of regrets go down a little bit more and the praise and encouragement go up a little bit higher? Not because I want to make myself feel good, but because I want to make him smile. There's something about this thing that the Bible teaches us about that we have the ability to create the feeling of pleasure in the heart of our Creator and our Father. And I want all of those good deeds to flow from my life so that they can be an offering to Him in the end for His glory, not for my own. We've said in this series, so many people have grown up in the church to be taught that we want to hear God say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. And and the Bible does speak to that, but it makes me nervous that that puts the focus on me. I don't want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, to make me feel good. I, I, I want him to be able to say that because the pleasure that it creates in his heart as a loving father. Good, godly deeds should flow from our lives. In Jesus' name, come on. Stand with me. I want to talk to you about this thing we call Welcome Home as we close our service. We do this every week together as a church family because we know that there might be people that are here every week. There might be people that are part of our online community. And so we just, we want to take a few minutes just to talk with them. And if that's you, it's, it's, we want you to know that, that it's possible for you in this life to know God and to be known by Him. And there, there's nothing like it in the whole world. To know God, to know your Creator, and to be known by Him. And if that's a, a foreign concept, a foreign thought for you, part of that's not your fault. Because all of us were born into this world separated from God. But then a little bit it begins to fall on us because throughout our lives, the things that we've done that we know that we shouldn't, that the Bible calls sin, guess what? That keeps us separated from God. So even though I'm born into this world separated from Him, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all done things that keep us separated from Him. Now you and I, when this life comes to an end, we're going to have to stand before God and what the Bible calls a day of judgment. That's different from the judgment that we've been talking about. It's the judgment of whether or not we've embraced Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers. Now the stakes are high because the Bible says that the smallest sin is worthy of eternal death. But then that's where Jesus comes in and he says, hey, I've got good news. Because 2,000 years ago, he died on a cross for us so that we could be forgiven of every regret, so that we could be forgiven of every sin, 
so that we could be forgiven of everything that we've done or thought or said that we wish we hadn't. And then it gets even better because Jesus said, not only did I die for what you've done, I've died for everything that you're still going to do because we're all still going to make mistakes. He says, I've died for those things too. So that on that day that we stand before him, on that day of judgment, that there's an opportunity for us to not step into that conversation with a fear of condemnation, but with a humble hope, with a humble hope that he's going to extend to us an invitation to eternal life with him in heaven forever. Now, we, we said that every week because at some point, all of us in this room heard that for the very first time. And it stirred our heart just like it's stirring yours now. And in hearing, it caused us to believe. And in believing, we made what we call a vow of devotion to Jesus. So as you look back on the story of your life, if you can't find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to him, we hope that you'll make it tonight. At the end of the service, every week, we have people that are down here at the front. If you're part of our online community, there's a button you can push to go into a private chat room with one of our hosts that would love to talk with you more about what it means to make a vow of devotion to Christ. We call this the welcome home moment, not because we're trying to welcome you to our church. We call it a welcome home moment because we want you to experience what it likes to be welcomed into the family of God. Because when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, the the Bible says we're born into his family. And part of the prize of being in his family is, guess what, for the rest of your life, you never have to wonder what it's like to know God and to be known by him, the greatest treasure that you will ever have. Let's pray. Father, I pray for people that are here tonight that making a vow of devotion to Christ, being born into the family of God, that all these things are foreign concepts to them. I pray that they would find their way down to the front of the church tonight at the end of this service to talk with someone. If they're part of our online community, I pray they'd be willing to take a chance and go into one of those private chat rooms to talk with one of our hosts. For everybody else, God, I pray that that something inside of us would, would be stirred out of our slumber, out of our spiritual lethargy, that something inside of us would be awakened. That Jesus, you said that you came that we might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure. Help us, help us to not settle with mediocrity. Help us to not settle for less. Help us to be convinced that the greatest adventure that we will ever have in this life is to is Jesus is to run after you, to follow after others that are following after you, and to turn around and see other people that are following us becoming like you, sharing in your divine nature, as Peter said, so that the outflow of my life would be every good and godly deed that you have assigned to me. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen.